head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he made himself to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless I had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself king opposes Caesar. So Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out, sat him on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, or in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to be crucified. And Father, I pray as we talk about what your word is, Lord, that we wouldn't just think about these facts, these ideas, uh, the, the testimony of archaeology or manuscripts, or even just the kind of literature content of this book. But Lord, we would think about, and we would ask ourselves, can we trust this book? Can we trust the testimony of what we're reading? And I pray, Lord, that as we come back to this section at the end, this, this section of seeing your son crucified, Lord, that we would think about what the truth is actually is. Please, Lord, help us right now, for we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Now, if you've been to servants before, you know we take the Bible very seriously. I mean, we, 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 we think the scripture is God's word, and, and today we want to kind of begin a series, this four-part series of talking about why we take the Bible so seriously. What we believe when we say that we believe in the God who speaks. What do we mean by that? And so I want to read another scripture, a couple, two more scriptures that we'll be coming back to throughout this series. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it should be on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul writing 2,000 years ago. And he writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 
Now, there's no doubt when Paul wrote this almost 2,000 years ago that he definitely believed that the, this book, this scripture, was supernaturally inspired. And for the record, so do I. I, I am not pretending today or through this series to, to, to try to speak to you as a researcher or an apologist uh, or, or anybody who's an expert on archaeology. I am simply just a pastor who believes this book is God's word. But I also do speak to you as someone who's been and tends to still be a cynic. Someone who's not quick just to believe because someone tells me I should believe. And there's been something healthy about that. Something healthy about being willing to kind of question when someone just says, this is what you should believe or this is what God says. And so what we're going to look at today, though, is really not so much why we believe the scripture is God's word. But we'll, we'll talk about that. I'll try to convince you of that next, next time, next month. But we're looking at today is actually what is the scripture? What is it? We tend to look at this, or we, we, if you've been in church for a while, if you come to servants as your home church, you probably think to yourself, well, I think the Bible's God's word. I think the scripture is God's word. Well, that's good, but what is it? And, and it, we're, we're starting this, this first series by calling today's message about God's library, recognizing or understanding what we can know about the scriptures. And the first thing we can know about the scriptures is it isn't just one book. It is indeed a library. 66 books, 40 different authors, written over 1,500 years. Now, uh, there should be a map that will come up on the screen of the Mediterranean. Can you guys see that map? I know the graphics aren't the greatest here, but can you kind of see the map? Can you see the red circle? Is there no map? Can I get a map, people? Can I get a map? <laughs> there it is. Can you kind of see that red circle? It's supposed to be red, yep. That, that in, within that circle is pretty much where all the scripture, all 66 books, were written. Now, has anybody ever lived within that red circle? Raise your hand if you've lived within that red circle. Okay, so it's not your culture, all right? If anyone's going to raise their hand, it's going to say, anybody lived there 1,500 years ago? <laughs> so, so none of us have lived in this culture. And the reason this is important for us to understand is that when we're reading the scripture, we're reading a book that was, it was written in a different culture, in a different time, and even written to a different people. And we have to understand this. If you've ever had the experience of going, okay, they, they tell me this is God's word, they tell me God speaks to this word, and so you open up the scripture, you begin to read, and you're going, what does this have to do with me? And it's because it wasn't written to you. And it's important for us to understand this. In fact, one of the other things about the scripture that's interesting, and this will get really, this will be really important in about three months when we talk about how we utilize the scripture, is that the scripture is actually not just written in one way. There's, there's historical narrative, there, there's epistle or didactic kind of teaching, that's what 1 Corinthians is. Uh, there, there's poetry, there, there's uh, what we call apocalyptic literature, which is a visionary kind of literature. There's all kinds of different types of literature in this library that we call God's library, that we call the scripture. What's interesting, though, is there's also this one unifying trajectory throughout all the scripture. Over 1,500 years, with authors from radically different backgrounds, they have the same unifying trajectory. There should be another image, I think, on the screen. The, the, these, this trajectory goes like this, and this is three ways of saying the same thing, in case you didn't know. It goes from very good to very bad to permanently best. We see this, God, God creates all things, and he says, behold, they're very good. 
and then there's the, there's the corruption, right, where, where man falls, and the, that it, it affects all of humanity, it affects all of uh, even, even the universe in some way. So you could go creation, corruption, and then recreation, where God redoes all things, where he renews all things. Or another way to put it is life, death, resurrection. Does that sound familiar? So there's this theme throughout all the scriptures. And, and again, what I'm talking about today, and knowing what the scriptures are, I'm talking about things, listen, that both skeptics and believers can know. Because the fact that the scripture is diverse and unified by itself doesn't prove that it's God's word. But those who are literary crickets, the critics, those who kind of study the Bible as literature, they don't necessarily even believe it's God's word, they attest to these things, but there does seem to be this this trajectory, this unifying trajectory throughout the scripture. Interesting. Another thing that we know about the scripture from Jesus our Lord, he says this. He claims to be the central message of the scripture. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. This is what Jesus says about the scriptures. Now, the, the, the point we're trying to, to get through, the thing that you can apply, hopefully, to your life right now is this, okay? The scriptures were not written to you, but they were written for you. There was an intended audience that was beyond just the original. Now, this is important. It's important because if you're going to understand the scripture, you're going to have to first understand what the original authors were intending for the original audience. You may call that the there and then. What was the there and then going on? You might have seen that we try to do this when we teach you the scriptures. You try to say, here's the there and then, before you can get to the here and now. A lot of people want to jump right into the scriptures and get right to the here and now. What's this mean for me right now? Well, you're not going to know unless you understand the there and then. Are you following me? So a lot of people will, will judge the scripture and say, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. I don't even know how this thing got so popular because they're looking for the here and now before they understand the there and then. But the truth is, what we know about scriptures is that they are diverse and unified. But also, we know the scriptures are, are honest and historical. Now, what do I mean by this? What do we mean when we say that the scriptures were honestly written? What do we mean? Well, one of the things you might hear of critics about the scripture, in fact, especially our Muslim friends love to bring up the fact that what they call contradictions in the scripture. Now, they do this because if you may or may not know that the the, the, our Muslim friends believe that the Quran, their holy scriptures, actually kind of descended from heaven. They just kind of, there's like, beam me down, Scotty. Here they come. Boom. They're right there so that we have them. Now, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but that's what they believe. And it's amazing because actually there's a lot of Christians that almost subconsciously seem to see, believe the same thing. That this book somehow kind of floated down into our existence. It's kind of always been. Or maybe they have a vision of right after the apostles uh, saw Jesus ascended, they started writing feverishly and put it all together a book and made that sure that every, every kind of church in every city had all these books. That's not the way it works. It's different. But what the Muslims say is because, oh, it can only be inspired if it somehow descended from heaven. Interesting sort of side note. What the Muslims believe about the Quran, we believe about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is God's holy word descended from heaven. We'll talk more about that later on. But they bring up these contradictions. So we're going to talk about just one of them. 
Just one of the contradictions that they bring up, because I think these contradictions actually prove that the Bible was not written in a collusive way. They weren't, people weren't kind of saying, well, you write this and I'll write this to make sure it sounds the same. Check this out. Uh, this, is, this is when Jesus is being crucified. In Mark chapter 15, we, we have the situation where it seems to say there were two criminals who were reviling Jesus. It says those, that's plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him. But Luke says something that sounds, at first appearance, different. Luke says in Luke chapter 23, one of the criminals who was hanged, uh, hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same condemnation? Now what's this? Is this one of those contradictions? No. Easy answer. In fact, most of the things that people bring up as contradictions actually have very easy answer. In this case, if you read Luke's context, you'll see that earlier Luke records one of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Anybody know what the first saying of Jesus was on the cross? Anybody know? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So you have the sense that Luke records, if you read the whole context, that there were these two thieves, and then it has Jesus saying, Father, forgive them what they do, and then later on, one saying, Jesus, you know, you're cursed, why don't you save us? And the other one saying, no, I believe you. So the truth is, is that what Mark's telling you is just the fact that there were two who reviled him. That probably happened before he said, Father, forgive them what they do. And what Luke records is, no, one actually came to saving faith while he was there. Good lesson for us, isn't it? You can come to saving faith even when you're hanging on a cross about to meet your maker. Now, one of the things we have to understand, too, about not just the scriptures, as the scriptures are written, or in this case, the New Testament was written, but even actually most uh, sort of historical writers from antiquity, from those that read, uh, wrote like in the first century or right before or right after, they were not so concerned the way we're concerned with things being in a chronological order or for things being quoted in exact, precise ways. Now, when I say that, some of you guys are going, what is it? Does that mean we, we don't know if Jesus actually said these things? No, that's not what we mean. It, it means this, okay? One of the reasons that we have four gospel writers is what we get is we get four views of who Jesus was and what he said, and all those views fit together perfectly. And the fact that they don't match up word for word perfectly proves they didn't collude to make this stuff up. They're like witnessing a car wreck and all giving testimony to the police of what happened. They're all giving their perspectives. This is what we mean by honestly written. That these supposed contradictions are actually evidence against some kind of collusive editing. That we're not looking at a Bible that's just trying to convince you of something that gives someone else power. We're, we're looking at eyewitness accounts. But also we mean this. When we talk about this honestly written reality, we're talking about the fact that the guys who wrote this, they didn't hide their own flaws. Let me give you just two examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Moses in the Old Testament. You guys remember, for those of you, for those of you who were around when we went through Exodus, remember when they're, they're just kind of getting into the desert, the, the, the Israelites, and they get to a place where they're thirsty, and they're crying out to Moses, oh, we're going to die, and why'd you bring us out? You guys remember that story? Yeah, okay. And what happens? Moses, God tells Moses, strike that rock, and water will come out and I'll make sure that my, my people have what they need. So he does it. Boom, he strikes the rock, and water comes out. Well, literally, years and years, decades later, the people are complaining again. And so here's what happens. Listen. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. 
Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembled together before the rock and said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hands, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Do you see what's happening here? God says to Moses and Aaron, Speak to the rock this time. What does Moses and Aaron do? They strike the rock. They, 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 they project this anger at, at God's people. Now, God's people can be frustrated. I don't blame them in one sense. But still, they were not representing the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, you're not going to enter the promised land. Why is this interesting? Why is this important about the scripture being honestly written? Because Moses is the one who wrote this down. He wrote this down. Now, when I tell stories, I often will tell stories about where I've blown it. Because I want you to know, listen, your pastor needs grace as much as you need grace. Okay, we all need God's grace desperately. But when I'm with my friends or when we're just kind of hanging out like after church, having lunch, I like to tell funny stories. I like to tell stories where I did something crazy, right? And I usually don't make myself sound too much like an idiot. Because when we talk about ourselves, we want to make ourselves look as good as possible. But the biblical writers were not afraid to show they were idiots. They were sinners in need of a savior like everybody else. New Testament example, Peter. The Apostle Peter, gotta love Peter, foot in, foot in his mouth, Peter, all the time. Here's what Peter does, right? From Mark's gospel, and we, uh, most scholars believe that Mark is getting his information from Peter's eyewitness account. That's important. Here's what we read in Mark's gospel. After, and Jesus said this plainly, that this is referring to Jesus predicting his, his crucifixion and resurrection. And this, Jesus said plainly, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, now if you're going to tell a story about the three and a half years you spent learning directly from Jesus, are you going to want to kind of highlight the story of when he called you Satan? Not unless you want to make sure you give an honest account. And he gave this honest account. Now, this is important because one of the accusations against the scriptures both Old and New Testament, oh, it's just mythology. Oh, it's just all, all stories made up to give some kind of moral purpose. But mythology isn't written like this. In myths, the authors don't sh show themselves as this faulty. They, 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 speak, they don't speak honestly like these guys have. But also, listen, the scriptures are historically verifiable. Now, I have to say, I spent so much time in preparing this, trying to comb through all the evidence, for all the archaeological evidence that points to Scripture. And the truth, I'll be honest, I'll be completely honest, there is so much of it, and it can be quite complex, that I thought any one of these examples is going to bore you. Um, that's not, please don't take that as I'm con condescending to you. I'm just saying I didn't think I could make it interesting. So what I've done instead is this, okay? And there's going to be a couple times that I'm going to refer to this. On our website, you can go to the area on our website where it says Talks, and what we're starting to do is now put the, the notes, the kind of handouts for the talks there so you can follow along those notes. And what we've done is this, for this message, we're, we've done a special handout that has several 
um, hyperlinks to different web articles that I found that were helpful that kind of summarize these things. Once you go to these web articles and you look at these things, you'll probably be able to find tons and tons and tons out there. There's so much information. The issue is not a lack of information. The issue is sifting through it and trying to keep your head among this. But here's the point. The point is this. When it comes to people and places that are, that are written specifically in the New Testament, they are time and time again confirmed by archaeology. Over and over again. Uh, one writer I, I read this week talked about, like, uh, uh, he paralleled the, the research into the human body with the archaeological evidence for Scripture. And, you know, I think it was like 100 years ago, they, there was a, uh, the, 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 the best medical science said there was something like three dozen vestigial, am I saying that word? Vestigial? Vestigial? Is that the right word? Yes, that's the right word. But something like that. This, say, it, say it for me, Sammy. Vestigial, thank you. <laughs> organs you don't need, that's what it means. There were like maybe three dozen organs you don't need, right? And now they're down to maybe one. And it's interesting because here's what they found. Oh, there's all these kings and, and rulers and cities named in the New Testament, and we can't find any of these. Now they're down to hardly any. Because over and over and over again, the more they dig, the more they find that the scriptures are historically verifiable. Again, myths don't have that. History has that. But also, when we talk about these scriptures being honest and historical, we mean that they've been progressively preserved. Here's what I mean. That again, it wasn't that this book descended down from heaven, but that as these things were written and gathered, they were kept quite carefully. Let's kind of just give one example about the Old Testament. So, so in, in 1947, there were shepherds in, in a place called Qumran, uh, near the Dead Sea, in, in the, what's now uh, the Middle East, now Palestine or Israel. And, and they were looking for lost sheep, and they chuck a rock into a cave, and they hear the, the, the distinct uh, sound of smashing a smashing jar. And they go and they research, and what do they find? They find loads and loads of parchments in this jar. And one of the parchments they found was an almost entire um, sort of uh, in, in, in intact um, Isaiah the prophet, the Old Testament book Isaiah the prophet. And here's the thing. Now, after archaeologists dug this out and they, they began to interpret it, here's what they recognized, okay? That despite some very small textual variants, nothing that would change the meaning at all, just small things and significant differences, the similarities in both the ancient and modern texts actually prove that the transmission of Scripture over the ages has been remarkably accurate. In other words, the Isaiah 53 that we read now is the Isaiah 53 that they would have read then. That the Bible's been preserved. See, the Jews considered the, the Old Testament text so sacred that they would, what they would often do is they would, they would copy it not word for word or sentence for sentence, but letter by letter. And they would do so in, in a sense that there was like a grid. So you have one scroll that has the, 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 the text of Scripture on it. They have a blank scroll, and that has a grid. And they would kind of measure this space and write that letter. And then they'd, they'd, they'd measure this space, and they'd write that letter. And they make sure that it was just exactly the same. They make sure that it was preserved accurately. But also the New Testament. Because when we talk about the New Testament, I, I think it's important that we recognize, too, that the New Testament authors, often even the Old Testament authors, didn't realize that they're writing what we would call scripture, that they're writing the very words of God. They didn't necessarily have that mindset. 
And so when we have the Old uh, New Testament specifically, these letters, these were things that were actually collected over a, a, a period of time. That's, that's something that's fact, okay? It's fact. It's, it's an important fact. It's, it's important for understanding how we can grow as, as Jesus followers, but it's important for us to understand and how we value this book. So, so here's a, a basic idea of the four steps that went through before they recognized that this book that we have is the whole, what we call, canon of Scripture. Canon is just a word that means measuring rod or, or, or standard, okay? Here's the, here's the four basic steps that they would go through, okay? One was it composed by an apostle or a close colleague. In other words, like the Gospel of Mark, though Mark might, might be mentioned in the New Testament, he wasn't necessarily one of the 12 disciples, obviously, but he, seemed to be, he seems to be the nephew of Peter, and he seems to get his information from Mark's Gospel from Peter, right? Was it accepted as orthodox? In other words, the Gospel that was being preached before the New Testament was fully written, that Gospel was being explained. Or what we see in Acts chapter 2, when it talks about the, the, the first Jesus followers continuing steadfastly in four things, the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, okay? The Apostles' Doctrine or teaching was simply them taking the Old Testament scriptures and expounding them in light of who Jesus is and what he'd done through his death and resurrection, okay? Those teachings eventually got collected or were used as a way to respond to bad teaching in the New Testament letters. You guys following me? So that's what we mean by orthodox. In other words, what was the orthodox gospel that they had heard, that, that, that Jesus' followers heard? Okay, they would hear this gospel. They would kind of maybe start drifting away from that gospel, and someone would write them a letter. James, the brother of Jesus, might write a letter saying, listen, you guys are missing the boat. You're, you're thinking that you don't need to walk in obedience when faith always obeys. He writes James' letter, right? Peter sees that the church that's been uh, uh, scattered because of persecution. And they're wondering, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe we don't understand the gospel. So he writes his first letter. One Peter explaining that, no, no, no. You got the gospel right, and you shouldn't think it's strange that you're suffering. Or Paul writes to the, the churches that are in this area called Galatia. The, it's actually a people group called the Gauls. And he writes to them because he finds out that, that though they first received the gospel of grace, they started getting pulled into what we might call legalism. People telling those Gentile Gauls that they had to become Jews before they became Christians. And Paul writes a letter to the Galatians saying, listen, if anybody preaches any other gospel, let them be accursed. So, so this is what we mean by orthodox. But also it had to be relevant to all believers everywhere. Have any of you guys ever heard of the Gnostic Gospels? Anybody here heard of the Gnostic Gospels? A few of you? Okay. Anybody read any of the Gnostic Gospels? What have you read? The Apocrypha. Okay. That's a little bit different than Gnostic, Gnostic Gospels, but yeah, that's Apocrypha, yeah. Thomas, you're the Gospel of Thomas? Okay. So Sam, Sam's my buddy today. Sam's read the Gospel of Thomas, right on. Rory, you haven't read the Gnostic Gospels? What kind of Bible college student are you? There you go. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. So, so Sam, when you read the the uh, when you read the, the Gospel of Thomas, did it seem similar to the other Gospels, or did it seem a little bit weird and esoteric? It really weird. Yes. And if you there's a different quality about the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels probably every Easter and Christmas get thrown in our face. In the U.S., they go on the major news magazines. Oh, look at this new evidence: the Gospel of Peter. 
And this proves this is probably the gospel that more people actually wanted to listen to or read or believe. And it's bizarre. The gospel of Peter is interesting. Has has information in it that's about like actually gives a, a more detailed description of what the resurrection looked like. In other words, what we have in the gospel accounts that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see, okay, Jesus is buried in the tomb. We see, there, we hear there's an earthquake. They, they find the stone rolled away, and Jesus is gone. There's not, like, a lot of detail, right? But the gospel of Peter, wow. There's not just the earthquake. They, they say that they, they see the, the, the tomb gets rolled away, and out they see, we saw Jesus come out, and he was 60 foot tall. And floating behind them was the cross that was buried with him. Yeah, it's weird. It's stuff that doesn't fit in history. It's stuff that doesn't even fit in mythology. It's just bizarre stuff. This is the Gnostic Gospels. Also, we know, uh, looking at sort of uh, manuscripts and things that were mentioned within the Gospel of Peter or, say, the Gospel of Thomas, these things were written at least 200 years after the time of Christ. Whereas the Gospels we have, we have from the Gospel of John a, a clip that's only less than 100 years. Uh, actually, less than, um, uh, uh, yeah, less than 100 years from the time of Christ. So, so the reality is that there, there's, that there's a difference between these, the way the Old Testament and, and New Testament was preserved. There was a re, uh, they had to be relative to all believers, and knowing a 60-foot Jesus is not relative to anybody. Though, interestingly enough, there are some televangelists that talk about seeing 60-foot Jesuses, but we won't get into that. But also, how widespread were they? How often would these manuscripts get copied and distributed? How often, say, was Romans recopied and then spread out to other churches outside of Rome? That kind of thing. What's the evidence towards that? Because this is, again, how the canon was recognized. Not invented, but recognized. There's massive, massive manuscript evidence. I think I have a, a graphic that kind of shows this. Do you, can you see it? Because I know the graphics aren't that great. But. Yeah, see, that's the Empire State Building over here. In case you know, it's a very tall building. That's the Statue of Liberty. Probably you guys all know that. Okay, here's how this works. On this end, a very, very small stack. That's the stack of manuscripts that are about other works of antiquity, other old books that we consider either historic or helpful for our understanding of, of, of history. Okay? So, like, you might have heard of the Roman uh, uh, historian Pliny the Younger. So we have just a small handful of manuscripts, yet historians will take that as historical information, right? All right? But then you get over, over to the Empire State Building, and you know what that is? New Testament manuscripts. Because they were so well received and so well copied and so well distributed, even at the point of death where people were being killed for having these things, that we still can find literally thousands. There's... there's uh, manuscripts or pieces of manuscript, there's almost there's over 24,000 at least pieces. Now, some of those are, are, are pretty old. They're like 800 years after the time of Christ, but still, they're everywhere. Why is this important? Because what we're talking about here is scriptures that are honest and historical. None of what I've just said to you actually proves that the Bible is the word of God or that you should treat it as such. But what it does show us is that what we're talking about here, what we have in our hands is a trustworthy historical document. It's a library that God's people have always benefited from. Here's the last bit we want to look at today. The scriptures are also important and impactful. 
Well, that's easy to say, isn't it, John? Because you think they're important. No, they're important objectively. Here's what I mean by that. This book is a book that defines a people. And, and I'm not just making this up. This is what other people say about us as Christians. Again, the Quran, our Muslim friends, call Christians people of the book. We are meant to be those who are identified uh, by what's being written here. Which is important because, listen, if, if you're involved in a, in a group or uh, if, you, if we ever get to a place at Servants Church where we stop teaching you what this book says and calling you to consider how your life should change in light of this book. If that ever changes here, you should go somewhere else. Because God's people are always people of the book. Now, the, the, the question sometimes comes up, yeah, but what about those things that are missing? That's when people bring up the things like the Gnostic Gospels. What do we find in other stuff? Well, here's, it's interesting, okay? Because what's interesting about this is when we talk about a book that defines us, we're not talking about sort of mystical experiences that define us. We're not talking about myths or legends that define us. But we're talking about the records of who Jesus is and how his first followers lived their lives. Those records are what define us. In fact, listen to the end of John's gospel. Here's what John writes. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, we're people defined by the book because we believe the book gives us all that we need to know our God. Now, we're going to talk more about this as we move on in this series. But again, this is a fact of history that God's people have always been about God's word. But also, listen, it's the book that has made our world. It's made our world. The, 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 the air we breathe, the cultural air we breathe has been a result of this book, of what the scripture says about God, what the scripture says about morality, what the scripture says about human value. This is the air we breathe. I, I'm going to put, uh, should be another graphic with two books on the screen. Can you guys see that one? Can you read what those are? If anybody wants these, I can send you the PowerPoint slides as well. But the two books, the, the one book I've read, the other book I haven't, I've only read bits and pieces of. The, the one book I read, the book that Major World, uh, Vishal uh, Mag, I'm going to say his, his name, I'm sorry, Mangal Wadi, I hope that's right. Brilliant book. In fact, I, I, one of the reasons I put a picture of it is because I loaned it to somebody and I haven't got it back. Does anybody have my book? Says, can I have it back, please? Just seriously, in case you have my book. But it's a great book. And what, what that book talks about, he's, a, he's a, uh, an Indian scholar, he's a philosopher, he's a theologian, and uh, he's one of the best, he's one of the, the, the most respected intellects in, uh, in India. And he writes this book showing how the, the best of the Western world is all rooted in Scripture. He writes from a Christian perspective, but he still writes that. We're gonna, I'll, I'll have a quote that I'll share about him from the end. The other book, Dominion by Tom Holland, not Spider-Man Tom Holland, by the way, not the actor, but the historian Tom Holland. Tom Holland, this Tom Holland, is not a Christian. He's an historian. But he says a similar thing. He, he says, we think Christianly and we don't even realize it. That's the impact of this book. So, so this is the thing that I'm, I'm trying to 
get through on this first of the series. I'm just trying to get, you through, get through to you that this book is worth your time. This book is worth your time. This library is worth your time. It's, it's worth your time because, because it is historical and honest. It's worth your time because it is diverse and unified. And it's worth your time because it is important and it is impactful. And you're already experienced the impact whether you believe or not. It's worth your time. Now, what we can know about the scriptures is not a replacement for faith. And as I said before, none of this actually proves that this book is God's word. I hope to give you good evidence of that next time. But I really hope that this helps you have a reason to believe that you can know what truth is. Because Jesus says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So in closing, let's go back to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Now let's read it again. Jesus about to be crucified. This is his interaction with Pilate, the Roman governor. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out and said to them, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. John testifies that Pilate recognized Jesus as innocent. Jesus was crucified as an innocent man. He says in verse 7, it says in verse 7, Then the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. That's true. For any man to call himself God is blasphemy, and blasphemy had the penalty of stoning to death. So in one sense, they're not saying anything that's not true, except for the fact it's only blasphemy if you're not actually the Son of God. And when Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate's probably thinking son of God as in son of the gods, little g. And so he enters his headquarters again and he says to Jesus, Who, where are you from? And Jesus gives no answer. And so Pilate says, uh, don't you realize if you don't, you're not going to speak to me, I can release you or I can have you crucified. But what does Jesus say in verse 11? He answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. And there Jesus says, listen, I don't care that you can crucify me because I, my life is submitted to the one who has all authority. He's the greatest authority. That's the authority that's going to rise him from the dead. Now, here's what's interesting. If you, if you go back a, a, a little bit in John's gospel, just to chapter 18, verses 37 and 38, look at the first kind of interaction that Pilate had with Jesus. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? This is what we're saying nowadays. What is truth? Truth is whatever works for you. 
Truth is, truth is whatever you determine to be true. What's truth? Now, here, here's the reality. Pilate says this. Pilate's wrestling with this. Though he's, he knows there's something about Jesus being innocent, uh, something about Jesus being potentially supernatural. And so what happens in verse 12 of chapter 19? It says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement. And now verse 14, It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests who represented the nation of Israel, said, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. Pilate bows to political pressure and he crucifies the truth. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. See, here's what... uh, Bishal Megawati says in that great book that I highly recommend. He says, when we believe the truth is unknowable, what is truth? We rob it of its power. What is left is brute power wielding arbitrary force. Do you know why we as a culture think we should take care of the poor and why we should not go to war unless it's absolutely necessary or maybe not even at all? Or why we think that people have intrinsic value and their individual rights should be respected. Do you know where all that comes from? It comes from here. That doesn't prove it's the word of God. But it does prove it's worth you investigating. I want to encourage you to do something. Here we are. It's it's March. It's the end of March. We're three months into 2023. And you probably know that we have a Bible reading plan. And you might be thinking, wait a second, John, I, I'm a cynic. I don't, I don't read the Bible yet. You've got to convince me first. No, 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 I'm going to challenge you with this. I challenge you as a cynic to read the Scripture. Even, even just go through the New Testament. In fact, if you were to read just the New Testament and stuck to our five-day-a-week Bible reading plan, you could read 10 minutes a day and read the whole New Testament in a year. Easy. That's five days a week. So you, you go do this. Do, do 20 minutes a day, read through the New Testament, read a couple chapters, three chapters, read for 20 minutes a day. By the time you get to probably the end of April, you'll be caught up if you go back down to 10 minutes. But you read the New Testament this year. You see what it says for yourself. And you're going to find the same thing that we're talking about today. You're going to find the scriptures are unified and diverse. You're going to find the scriptures are honest and historical, you're going to find the scriptures are important and impactful. You're going to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen? Amen. Father, I just want to pray for anyone here who's wrestling with what it means to be a Christian, and yet not wrestling with your scriptures. I pray, Father, that they would indeed dive in and read. They would read, and that your Holy Spirit would take your living and active word and convince their hearts of who you are. And I pray, Lord, for any of us who know you in truth, I pray, Father, that you would 
uh, Lord, that you would help us to be those people of the book. We wouldn't just give lip service to the Bible, or we wouldn't just kind of come on a Sunday and think, oh, we, we studied on a Sunday at Servants. We must be the people of the book. Lord, we don't actually get on our face before you and open your word and say, God, speak to me. And Lord, as the music team comes back up right now and we get our hearts prepared to remember you at your table. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of the truth. That on the same night that you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it. And you said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. And you took a cup of crushed grape, which in a Jewish mind, Lord, you know, <laughs> would have represented wrath. And you said, take, drink. This is my blood spilled for you. Lord, this is what you've done. This is what you called us to remember. That though Pilate bowed to political pressure and the Jews were blinded by their own religious prejudice, you still, your word says, you were crucified before the foundation of the earth. It was always your plan, Father, to come as a man, to send your son as a man, to live and to die for us, that we might know you as the truth and be set free. So Lord, would you just use this time of remembrance to bring us close to you? And Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would either not partake of communion, they would, let, they would not come up and get their, their part, or, or Lord, if they do, they would do so as believers. They would do so as their induction into your family, believing that you died for them, that you rose from the dead, that they're free and forgiven. Lord, be glorified during this time that we remember you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.